Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Um, Let's now move to our scripture reading. We are jumping into a new series today called Life Together. We are going to be going through the book of 1 Timothy. That is not what we'll be exploring today. Today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10. Because next week, my friend Berkeley will be back with us. She'll be preaching on the church as the bride of Christ and what that means. And so I thought today would be a really great introduction to the church in general from Hebrews chapter 10. And so Terry's going to come and read for us Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Good morning. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus... He has inaugurated for us a new living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Terry. Well, no fancy introduction this week. We're jumping right in uh, because we're in the middle of a book. And this is a really weird place to kind of jump in and read something, especially when it starts, therefore. When you see a therefore, you got to look back. You got to look back to everything that came before. And the problem in Hebrews is that by the time we get to chapter 10, verse 19, and we read therefore, the writer is talking about the whole previous 10 chapters, or nine and a half chapters. So there's a lot of ground to cover. So I hope you're ready to be here. It's a good thing we're having lunch. You can be here for a while. Um, So we're jumping right here into the latter part of the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews as a book, as a letter, can be summed up in three words. Jesus is better. That's the whole message of Hebrews. Now you don't have to read the book, right? Jesus is better. Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We don't know who they were writing to. We know almost nothing about the situation of the book of Hebrews. And if you know anything about understanding and interpreting the Bible... Usually what we have to do is we read the letter, uh, one of Paul's letters or this letter to Hebrews, we read it and then we have to infer from what's being said the circumstances that it was addressing. And in Hebrews, what we find is this writer is addressing people who are tempted to go back to the temple system. They're tempted to go back into kind of ritual Judaism and seek their salvation there, and maybe add Jesus' attack on to it all. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing throughout this book is trying to explain how, like, all that stuff you did before that was comforting to you, the sacrifices that you made, and the ritual times that you prayed, and, and the places that you went, and the ritual things that you did, and the cleansing you went through, all of that that was comforting to you is actually of no benefit without Jesus. And Jesus is superior to all of this. In fact, a good portion of the chapters right before this is an explanation of how Jesus is superior to the temple and to the tabernacle that came before it. 
that all these sacrifices made in the temple really pointed to Jesus and that he's the fulfillment of it all. And there's one point in Hebrews chapter 6 where if you read it without understanding the context of Hebrews, really gets scary because he says, look, if you go back, you're rejecting Jesus and you're, it feels like he's saying you'll lose your salvation if you don't like do this thing properly. But what he's really talking to are people who are saying, you know what, I've got this Jesus thing, I've got this Jesus community, but it's kind of hard because we're kind of being persecuted, and it would be easier if I just went back to the synagogue. It would be easier if I just went back to the temple. And what the writer is saying is, that's not going to be of any benefit to you, and if you do that, you're rejecting Jesus, because Jesus is better than all that. You don't have to do this. In fact, in chapter 11, or the verses right after this, chapter verses 26 and following, the writer is going to say, if you step away from this community and go back to your ritual community, you're saying Jesus isn't enough, which is rejecting him. And so don't do that. Stick with it, because Jesus is better. And what you got to understand, too, is that the people that he's writing to seem to be suffering in some way. They seem to be suffering for their faith in Jesus. And if you understand the ancient world, you'll know why. If he's writing to Hebrew people, Jewish people, and he's writing in really polished Greek, it doesn't seem like he's writing in a way that, that Hebrew or Aramaic is behind the Greek. Sometimes, this is really complicated, but sometimes in the New Testament when a writer writes, you can tell that their original heart language is Hebrew or Aramaic, and they're referring back to Old Testament stuff. And sometimes you can tell that they're native Greek speakers. It's kind of like when you, when you speak another language and you're really fluent in it and you can tell it's someone's heart language and then they start speaking English and it's kind of broken and it's, it's, it may be grammatically perfect and yet you can still tell that that's not their heart language. Reading the Bible in the original languages can be like that. When you're reading um, someone in Greek who might have grown up speaking Aramaic, you can tell. But when you read in Greek someone who grew up speaking Greek, you can tell. It's really polished. It's clean. They know what they're doing. Their grammar is impeccable. And Hebrews has some of the most polished Greek in the New Testament. And so what, this, what we infer is this is probably a Jewish person who has grown up outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, grown up speaking Greek. They know Greek well. They're very well educated. And so they live in what's called the diaspora. They're outside the Holy Land, and they've grown up as a or probably a Roman citizen, or at least a highly educated Roman. And they're writing to other Jews who are in the same boat with them. They're writing to other Greek-speaking Jews who grew up outside of Judea and who have now decided to follow Jesus. And so these Jewish people, they can understand this very polished Greek very well, and this is the audience that we infer. Now, if we believe that's the audience then we can also infer that these people, when they start following Jesus, they've lost their community. They're not longer welcome in the synagogue. They're not welcome in their Jewish community that they were part of before. This is now late enough in the birth of the church, maybe the 60s or 70s AD, that the, the Jewish people in the synagogues outside of Jerusalem and Judea have kind of cottoned on that, wait a minute, these Jesus followers, they're not like us. They're a little different than we are. And so they kick the Christians out of the synagogue because they recognize these Christians, they're not, they're not Jewish in the same way we are anymore. They're following this guy they call Messiah, and they can't be part of our community. They're heretics. we got to kick them out. 
And when you live in this world, when you're a Jew living in the Roman world outside of Palestine, outside of the Holy Land, your Jewish community is what you have. They are your people. They're your family. They're the people you do business with. They're the people you have dinners with. They're the people you spend time with. They are your community. And when they kick you out, you're out. You've lost everything. You've lost your people. You've lost your family. You've lost your community. And so this writer who is writing to these Greek-speaking Jewish people outside of Palestine is writing to comfort them. That despite the fact that you've lost so much, despite the fact that you're suffering, don't turn back to the empty religion you were investing in before because Jesus is better. And Jesus has knit this community together. We will be your family. We will support you. We will be there together with you. You don't need to go back to the temple. You don't need to go back to sacrifices. You don't need to go back to the rituals you were doing before. Hang with us. Stick with Jesus. Because Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's only Jesus plus nothing that is everything. And so this writer is trying to get these, these Jewish Christians to understand that they don't need all that other stuff. And if they start to tack it on, they've actually said no to Jesus. Now, how often do we do that? How, how much do you have tacked on to your faith? Or is your faith just a tack on to your life? How much? If, if, we, if we could see our belief in Jesus, like in front of us, if it was like one of those flannel graphs in Sunday school, right? If we had our faith up on a, up on a pegboard there, how much stuff would be built on top of it? How much stuff would be pinned to it? Because I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And yes, I need Jesus, but I need Jesus and my coffee too. I need Jesus and Etsy. I need Jesus and social media. I need Jesus and my followers. I need Jesus and my high-paying job. I need Jesus and my parents to tell me who I am. I need Jesus and blank. Fill it in. Whatever it is that we're tacking on is a rejection of the sufficiency of Jesus himself. Anything we're tacking on to Jesus to make us who we are, to build our identity on, is a rejection of the fullness of who Jesus is, of all that he's really done for us. It doesn't just have to be ritual religion. It, we, we read that, and that's the situation of these Jewish people this guy is writing to. But in our world, we've got all kinds of things that we're trying to find our identity in that aren't Jesus, and we're tacking on to our faith. And God wants to clear those things away. Let's get to Jesus. Hold to him. Because Jesus is better than anything else. And that's where we've come. So we've come up here. And now at the beginning of verse 19, the writer says, Therefore, because Jesus is better than all that other stuff... Here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to know. We're coming down to the heart of the matter. And the writer says, Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, which he had just before contrasted with the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and the blood of lambs, 
Now he's saying it's not through those, it's through the blood of Jesus that we have access to God. Now that we have the boldness to enter the throne room of God through the blood of Jesus. And then he has a little aside here, a little explanation. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. Man, there's so much there. That is through his flesh, right? Through Jesus, now we have access to the throne room of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here the writer is pointing back again to that system where he's saying, you don't need a priest, you don't need sacrifices. Jesus is both. Since we have all this, now verse 22, and we begin, we start with the, his three points here. Because all that is true, now let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And so now he's getting into the implications of this truth, the implications of this gospel. Because all that other stuff is true, now here's what you do. First, you draw near. Now, there's a problem. There's not a subject with this draw near or an object with this draw near. Draw near to what? Draw near to who? And so fortunately, he used this language before. Back in chapter 4, verse 16, the writer said, let us draw near to the throne of grace. And the natural reading here then is the same thing, right? Let us now draw near. Because we have access to the throne of God through Jesus, let's, let's approach, let's get in there. It's kind of like if, if you don't go into the throne room, if you've got a wide open door in front of you, and the king is sitting on the throne saying, hey, come on in, and you don't take that step, what was it all for? What's it all worth? And so the writer is saying, you've got access to the throne room of God, go! You've got access to God himself, go! Draw near to him. God is waiting there with open arms, and that's what he says next. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If you have somebody, if you're somebody who's lived into the idea that I got to perform for God to love me, that I got to do this right stuff and I got to be perfectly pure for God to love me. <clears throat> if you're somebody who's grown up in a legalistic world that tells you if you're not A, B, C, D, E, and F with a little S thrown in, you can't stand before God, then this idea of drawing near to God's throne terrifies you. It's scary. And so the writer knows the people he's writing to. When he says, draw near to the throne of God, they're going to be like, oh, no, that's for the priests. That's, that's not for me. That's for those people who went through all that purification and all that special washing and did all the right stuff and went through all the rituals. And now they can go in to the throne room of God. This is all playing on an image from the old temple in Jerusalem. In the temple, you had multiple different courts. There was the large outer court of the Gentiles where absolutely anybody could come, and that's where the business would be done. That's the place where Jesus goes, and he starts throwing over money-changing tables, right? Because he says that you've, you've turned the temple of God into a commercial racket. And then inside of that, you have the court of the women, where Jewish people are allowed to go inside. But Gentiles, you don't get to come in yet. So you go into the court of the women, and then inside the court of the women, there's another area. There's another court where the Jewish men can go and gather. And then inside of that, then you have the Holy of Holies. You have the priestly chambers. And then in the very center, you have the Holy of Holies. And if you're a good Jew, that's where the throne of God is. 
That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. I mean, if you've seen Indiana Jones, right? You know what the Ark is, that thing that like shocked the Nazis and like melted their faces. That's what dwells in the middle of the temple, right? It's this golden box with two cherubim. These are not angels. These are cherubim. These are spiritual creatures that would freak you out if you ever saw one. And they're, they're over the, the box there. And that's where the mercy seat is. That is the seat of God, the throne of God. One person goes into that place one time a year. That is all. And what the writer of Hebrews has just told these good Jewish people is that because of Jesus, you can go into that place anytime. Anytime. And so they're terrified of this. Terrified of this idea. And that's why he uses all this language to reassure them. When you approach the throne of God, you can come with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Know that when you step into that throne room, God will not melt your face like he did the Nazis, okay? When you step into that throne room, God is welcoming you with open arms. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. He's ready and waiting for you to come. So draw near! If you have access like this to God and you don't do it, you're a fool. And so the writer is reassuring them. And then he goes one step further because he knows these people are still going to be pushing back. He goes one step further. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. You see, before anybody ever stepped into that holy of holies in the temple, before anybody ever stepped into the real presence of God, the throne room of God in the temple, they would have blood sprinkled over them from the sacrifices on the altars to forgive their sin, to wash away their sin. But then they had to go through a ritual washing as well. And they had to be purified completely before they stepped into that throne room. So they had to have the blood from the altar sprinkled over them, for their sins to be washed away. And then they had to have their bodies ritually and physically washed before they could step in. And so the writer here is telling them, it's not for the temple to sprinkle the blood on you. It's not for you to go through that physical ritual washing. Through Christ, you have had his blood sprinkled on you. And through Christ, you have been ritually washed once and for all. You are pure. You are clean. You are welcome into God's presence. There's nothing to hold you back. And so because Jesus is better, let us draw near to the throne of God. The God who no longer terrifies us, but who welcomes us as a father. Let us walk into the loving arms of our father. I saw a meme yesterday. It was... Um, <laughs> On one side was this, like, it was one of those actors who always plays, like, a military general or, a, or, a, or well, he usually plays an NCO because he's really mean. Um, and so he, like, he's all dressed up in uniform and he's yelling like a drill sergeant. And then on the other side, he's all happy and, like, smiley. And the meme was, like, my dad with me growing up, my dad with my kids, right? <laughs> this is what happens through Jesus. God goes from the drill sergeant to the happy grandpa who this... This is what happens when we walk through the veil with Jesus. God welcomes us as a loving grandfather. Oh, he's not going to let us get away with stuff. But he's going to welcome us in once and for all. Because we've been washed. Because we're clean. Because we're holy through Jesus. And so that's the first implication. Because Jesus is better, draw near to God. 
Draw near. Next, hold fast. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Since he who promised is faithful. Older versions will say, hold fast. This one says, hold on without wavering. To hold fast. To hold tight to it. Don't let it go. Hold tight to the confession of your hope. And what is that hope? That hope is Jesus. Not the blood of lambs and bulls. Not the, not the satisfaction my job can get me. Not the self-satisfaction that my children can give me. Not the satisfaction that my spouse can give me. My hope is firmly held in Jesus. Nothing else. Everything else will fail me. My wife will fail me. Not as much as I will fail her, but she will fail me. My children will fail me. My job will fail me. You lovely, wonderful people who I count as family will fail me. And I will fail you. You are not my hope. And I better not be yours. Jesus is our hope. We hold fast to the hope in him. So let us hold fast to our confession without wavering, without looking to the right or left, without trying to pursue any other thing. Let's get rid of those things that are tacked on to Jesus to give us meaning in our life and hold fast to him. See, he's the only one who won't fail us. He's the only one who can give us true identity and meaning He's the one who made us. He's the one who knew what we're supposed to be from the very beginning. He knows God's intentions for us, and he loves us more deeply than anyone else can. And so we hold fast. We draw near, and we hold fast. And to these, to these Jewish Christians who are following Jesus, who have lost their community, this is hard. Because to hold fast to their hope in Jesus means losing their relationships. It may mean losing their jobs, could eventually mean losing their lives. Right now, we have brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are gathered in subways singing praise to Jesus because their cities are under attack and they are holding fast. And we can't imagine that. And we can't fathom what it's like to bunker down while my city is under siege And in that moment, instead of running, and in that moment, instead of falling into despair, singing praise to my God who holds me, we hold to him because he holds to us. And to these people that this writer is writing to, they're in the same situation. They've lost it. They've lost their community, maybe their jobs, maybe their security. They've lost so much. And the writer is saying, but hold fast because Jesus is better than what you've lost. To our brothers and sisters suffering around the world right now, they are, they are reminding themselves, hold fast because Jesus is better than my life. Whatever sacrifice we have to make for us in this room, Where we live is nothing as compared to the sacrifices made throughout history to hold fast to Jesus. If we let ourselves be distracted from holding fast to Jesus, we dishonor the sacrifices of our brothers and sisters. And I'm not trying to guilt us because we have all kinds of distractions and it is easy to turn our eyes away from Jesus. And I do it. 
But I remember my brothers and sisters throughout the history of the world who have stood up and boldly declared, I will hold fast to Jesus because he is better than life itself. In the early church, shortly after this was written, the, word, the Greek word for uh, witness is the word martus. And so if you were to witness to Jesus, we used to use that word a lot in my, in my growing up days in the Pentecostal church. We used to, we witness to Jesus all the time. We're going to be a witness. We're going to go be a witness to Jesus. And in the Bible, there's, there's good biblical precedent for using that word. In the Bible, the word witness is used over and over to witness to Jesus, which is to testify, to tell about what Jesus has done, to talk about him, to tell who he is, to let your life be a witness. But soon after this letter was written, the idea of witnessing to Jesus became so tied to dying for Jesus that the Greek word for witness, martus, became our word martyr. To witness to Jesus became so interconnected to laying down your life for him that we took the word witness and made it a word that means to die for your faith. That's the world these folks inhabit. And that's the world that millions of our brothers and sisters around the world inhabit right now, where to be a witness for Jesus might very well mean losing their lives. And when we are tempted to turn our eyes away for some little bauble or some tiny thing that might take us away for Jesus, we would do well to remember what it means to witness to Jesus in so many places in our world and throughout history. There's a great book if you are interested, Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can go pick it up for next to nothing, and you can read the stories of those brothers and sisters of ours who have given their lives for Jesus because they refused to let go. They held fast to the end. And let it be an encouragement to you as we hold fast to Jesus now. And finally, the writer goes one step further. Draw near to God because Jesus is better. Hold fast to Jesus because he is better. And finally, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Now there's so much here, man. First, in other translations you might read, let us consider one another. Here we read, let us watch out for one another. And the idea here is that we're actually involved in one another's lives. We're thinking about each other. We're thinking about our brothers and sisters who we're in community with. We're watching out for each other. And we're watching out for each other to catch people in sin, to shame them. We're watching out for one another so that we can really make sure they know when they've got it wrong. No, we're watching out for one another to provoke each other to love and good works. Here's the realism of the Bible. Love won't just happen. We live in a world where love is largely defined as something that happens to you. I fall into love. I really love that person because they blank. The Bible defines love as I love that person because I blank. I love that person because I did this for them because I reached out to them, because I was there to help provoke them to love and good deeds. Scripture knows, God knows, love doesn't just happen. And it won't just happen. Love takes 
effort. As DC Talk said so many years ago, love is a verb. Love is what we do. And the writer of Hebrews knows that. We watch out for one another, not to judge, not to put down, not to criticize, and certainly not to condemn. We watch out for one another to provoke each other to love and good deeds. Now, I've been provoked a lot in my life, and I don't usually respond very well to being provoked. I don't know too many people who have provoked me to love and good deeds. Think about that word for a minute. I mean, the Greek word that's behind this is a word that can be translated insight, to incite, to provoke, to prod somebody. It's my last name, goad. It's that prod that pushes you on. The writer here is saying, look, we watch out for each other so that we can prod one another to love. So we can prod one another to good deeds. Now, in our American church, in our individualistic American church, where we're like, don't meddle in my life, keep a safe distance, I need healthy boundaries, you can't be involved with me, we can't even get close enough to prod one another. We don't even allow people in enough to prod us. And if we do, we accuse them of meddling and of judging we got to open our hearts to let one another in well enough to be able to provoke us. And we ought to welcome it. Because I recognize love doesn't just happen from me. I need people to prompt me to love. I need God's Holy Spirit to prompt me to love. And I need you to prompt me to love. I was once pastoring a church. I haven't pastored that many churches, so you'll be able to figure this out, I guess. But I was once pastoring a church, and one of the older members was going in for surgery. As I understood it, this was a minor surgery. I didn't understand how severe it was. And it was in Denver. And we lived a long way from Denver. And so I was like, I will visit them when they come back. And someone in the church took me aside one Sunday and said, Brandon, you really need to be there before the surgery at the hospital. And I was like, as I understand, it's a minor surgery. I'll be there to care for them afterward. Um, and they were like, no, no, you, you need to make the drive and be there beforehand. That's what pastors do. And I was like, I had so many other people to care for, so many other things to do. It was, a, it was six to eight hours of my day to do this. And so I was like, okay. So I got in my Prius and I drove because we had to have a Prius for the 115-mile drive. And I drove downtown and I sat at the hospital with this couple. I didn't really know them well. But I sat there and I prayed with them and I talked with them. And that was the beginning of our friendship. And then he came out of the hospital and I came up to visit before he left the hospital. And then when they were home, I was there with them. And that whole relationship of love was built because one of our church members loved me and them enough to provoke me to show them love. I wouldn't have done it on my own. That's what it looks like to provoke one another to love. To go to one another and say, hey, you know what? Someone's having a hard time and I think you're just the person who would love them. I think you're just the person who would care for them. I think you're just the person to reach out to them. We are here to provoke one another to love and good deeds, but we can't do that if we're not together. We can't do that if we're not here together, if we're not spending time together outside of this hour. We can't do that if we're not truly the family that God has called us to be. The writer of Hebrews recognizes that and says... Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. 
The writer recognizes we can't provoke each other to love. We can't truly encourage each other if we're not in proximity to one another, if we're not gathered, if we're not together. This is why I have such a hard time with the online church thing. I love you if you're with us. We've talked. We're on the same page. I love you, but online church is not church. It's consuming content. And maybe it's helpful. I'm I'm sure it's helpful to people's spirituality. I'm sure it's helpful to them growing. And for those who absolutely cannot be here, we love you. And I'm thankful that you have this way of accessing us. But if we're not making the effort to reach out and to gather together and to spend time incarnationally with one another, in person together, we cannot fulfill Hebrews 10. We can't provoke each other to love and good deeds. We can't encourage each other. We can't be there for one another. We cannot be the family of God that never gathers together. Whether that's in a home, taking communion together because you can't be here in person. Whether it's here in the half hour before and the hour after just spending time with one another, whether it's throughout the week in a small group when I'm gathering together with my little family group from the church, whether it's serving together in some volunteer opportunity, whatever it is, the family of God must be together. We must gather together or we can't provoke each other. If I hadn't been in church that Sunday... That one lady would not have had the opportunity to say, Pastor, you need to be there. You need to love them well. To provoke me. Just as we are here to provoke one another. So these are the things that we do as the church. And as we head into this series in 1 Timothy, as we read Paul instructing this young pastor on how to lead a community and what their community should look like, and we learn from this how our community ought to be, let us never forget that because Jesus is better, our job as the church is to draw near to God, to hold fast to our confession of hope in Jesus Christ, and to gather so that we can provoke one another to love and good deeds, to be vulnerable enough with one another that we can speak into one another's lives and encourage and exhort and provoke to love of God and each other. That's the only way that the world will see the shalom, the peace, the wholeness that God wants to bring to it is when the church exhibits it for everyone else. People ought to walk into this place, walk into this family, and not leave saying, hey, wasn't that a perfect group of people, but leave saying, man, those are some broken people who nevertheless love well. And I want to be one of them. That's been the consistent witness of the church throughout its history. When we've done it right and we've done it well, people have not seen this perfect group of people who never mess up. They've seen a broken, messed up group of people united by Jesus who love really well. And when they don't, forgive one another so they can love really well. And so today, never forget, draw near to God. He is waiting for you, arms open wide. Hold fast to your confession of Jesus. And gather so that we can provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let's pray together. God, thank you that Jesus is better. 
That Jesus is better than all that other stuff I try to hold on to. That Jesus, you're better than anything in my life. And thank you that because you're better, you invite us to draw near. You invite us to draw into the very throne room of God where you wait with open arms. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've given us the wherewithal to hold fast to our confession. And I pray in this place, in this culture, where it costs us so little to hold fast, we would be firm in our confession of you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that to the extent that we can, that we are able to, we are gathered as your body, as your people. And that, Lord, you would send us out. You would employ us, Lord, to be hands and feet, to gather with those who can't be here in person. So that we can be open and vulnerable, provoked to love, encouraged by Christ and by one another. And God, as we gather for lunch, as we gather for this meal that's been so generously provided by the people here this morning, I pray that you would you would deepen our relationships, you would deepen our friendships, you would deepen our family, community, as we have a meal together. Thank you for the privilege of serving you, for the privilege of being saved by you, for the privilege of having your Holy Spirit live within us. Thank you, Lord, for provoking us to love and good works. May we never grow weary. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.